Hello, everyone. We'll get started in just a moment. Hello, this is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Reliability, and thanks for joining us today for this best practices webinar. You probably know Fluke is a test tools provider, and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite reliability tools from infrared cameras to vibration meters, but you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into EAM systems of record. It happens via a framework that we call Fluke Excelix. Our goal at Fluke Reliability is to better connect asset management data and teams with asset management systems to drive connected knowledge. And of course, that knowledge depends greatly on best practices in condition-based maintenance. So that's why this series of webinars explores reliability maintenance strategies. That's why we feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. Before the presentation, we have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so your phone lines will be muted to minimize background noise. We will be answering questions after the presentation during Q&A. But take a minute now to find the questions tool in the GoToWebinar dashboard, and please feel welcome to submit questions as we go. I will share as many of your questions as time allows for our presenter to answer. If we have unanswered questions at the end, we'll follow up with written answers. If you'd like to receive the slides from today's presentation, please let us know during the survey that will appear at the end of today's session. So don't hang up until the survey appears and you've answered the questions. We're also happy to send you a certificate of attendance after today's webinar. You'll see a question on the survey about getting a certificate. Answer yes and we'll send one to you. A recording of this webinar in full will be available on the excelix.com website within a day or two. And that's it for housekeeping. Now for the main event. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Don D'Onofrio, a veteran motor maintenance and testing expert. He'll be presenting on electric motor testing technologies. Don is the technology lead for electric motor testing and power quality analysis at the Snell Group, a Bar Vermont-based international consulting firm. As an instructor and practitioner with Snell since 2001, Don has been integral in developing a series of innovative vendor-neutral motor testing training courses. During his 46 years overall of operating, maintaining, and testing electric motors and motor circuits, he's worked on motors rated in ounce inches of torque on up to NASA wind tunnel synchronous motors with 80,000 horsepower. Don's diverse electrical, electromechanical, electronic, and sound motor knowledge is founded in his 20 years with the US Navy Nuclear Submarine Service. He instructs both energized and de-energized motor and motor circuit analysis courses, as well as level one infrared thermography. Welcome, Don. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you very much, Leah. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's have a look at your introductory slide, and then I believe we have a poll question to get us started. Are you able to forward the slides? Uh, we got a minor little lock up here like we had earlier, but it uh, should clear here in a second. That's all right. There we go. There we go. All right. Why don't you let us know if there's anything you want to share here before we move on to the poll? Uh, no, we're uh, we're pretty good here. You covered uh, my background pretty good. Okay. All right. So, audience, you are mostly familiar with this. Donna, feel forward to the poll slide. 
right, let me do a quick quick uh, introduction to Snell here. Uh, Snell Group is a company that was established in 1986, and we currently have offices in Vermont and Missouri. We're primarily a knowledge-based company, and we offer two condition-based technologies with three service platforms. The two technologies are infrared thermography and electric motor testing and we offer training, and that can be either in-house or on-site, consulting and uh, turnkey inspection services for both. And here we are with the poll question, Leah. And there we are. All right, so audience, you are very familiar with this practice. I'm going to launch the poll now. Your question is how much experience does your company have conducting motor tests? And you only get to answer once. Our purpose here primarily is to let Don know what kind of folks are in the audience today. Um, and then uh, we will share the answers with everyone once we have about 75% or so of the audience um, sharing their level of experience. So, do you think your company has advanced experience in conducting motor tests, intermediate, beginner, never tried it, or not sure? And we are already just about there. I'm going to give it about 10 more seconds. So just click the best answer for you. And then uh, we're going to share our results. Nice job, audience. Okay. And Don, here are the answers. We have 10% in the advanced category. 43% in the intermediate group, 33% in the beginner, 12% never tried it, and 1% are not sure. You have a lot of active people in the audience today. Um, yeah, I am. I'm amazed uh, because there's there's still a lot of industrial facilities out there that don't even use a megometer. What? So, <laughs> I kid you not. It, it's it's uh, it's hard to believe in a lot of cases it's the 21st century. So I'm I'm really impressed with the the poll results there. Well, well done, audience. I'm going to turn it over to Don because you've got a lot to share with us today. So go get him. All right. So this uh, presentation it's meant to kind of give you an overview of all the capabilities of electric motor testing. This is something that we have two 32-hour courses to cover, and I'm trying to cover an overall uh, aspect of it in, in, in less than 50 minutes. But the important thing is, why do we test electric motors? It, it might be quite a shock to you, but in the United States alone, 25% or close to it of all power consumed is consumed by electric motors. Depending on the industrial process, anywhere from 60 to 90% of the power in that facility could be consumed by electric motors. Another interesting fact, motors cost about five to 12 times their initial purchase cost in energy consumption in the first year. So if you take uh, average utility costs, a 25 horsepower motor running all year long is gonna cost you about $15,000 to operate. A 100-horsepower motor would run about 56000 So that's a considerable expense. And you think of the number of motors you have in your facilities, that could be a considerable utility cost. Motor energy consumption should be a concern for everyone. Unfortunately, at a lot of facilities, motors are like the roof. You don't really think about it until the roof starts leaking or the motor burns up. All the mechanisms that lead to motor failure cause an increase in the operating temperature of that motor. That increase in temperature causes the insulation to become dry and embrittled, 
And then under the operating stresses, primarily starting it cracks and then allows dirt moisture to get in there and, and eventually uh, the winding short out to ground or between phases. Motor testing identifies those failure mechanisms that cause that. Now, what really got the ball rolling on motor testing and why I'm here is in 1986, EPRI, which is the Electric Power Research Institute, it's a conglomeration of utility companies, and they get together and they uh, fund studies that mutually uh, help out with the power generation industry. In 1986, they funded General Electric to conduct a, a study on the causes of motor failures. Now, these motors were medium high voltage uh, utility corporation type motors. And of no surprise, the number one failure was bearings. And that was 41%. Of a big surprise was the fact that 37% were stator, 10% rotor. So you take those two components, that's 47% that are electrical faults. 12%, that was a bunch of different miscellaneous things such as misapplication, that type of stuff. But to go a little bit further, of that 41% of the bearing failures, there was no determination how many of those bearing failures were electrically induced. So we could have upwards of 50% of the problems that were electrically induced. And, and at that time, there was no really specialized uh, available electrical motor test instruments. And because of that, uh, Baker Instruments started making uh, more general purpose uh, motor test instruments. PDMA came out of that. Uh, all tests started making more and more instruments uh, for testing motors. So, it, And that's, I got in when I got out of the Navy in 1994, I started work for PDMA Corporation. Now, some more interesting facts. Each year, more motors are repaired than are sold new. It works out to be about a two and a half to one ratio. It's estimated that motors repaired on, uh, approximately every five to seven years, and they're frequently operated for 20 to 30 years. The Department of Energy says that if we spend more time uh, paying attention to our motor management, that we can reduce our energy costs by as much as 18%. I don't know about you, but just I'd like to save 18% on my electric bill every month. According to APRI, which is the Electric Power Research Institute, uh, the efficiencies of, a me of mechanical equipment in general can be increased typically by 10 to 15% by proper maintenance. So that's why we wanna test our motors. And when we get into the testing of motors, there's two basic classifications. We have de-energized testing and energized testing. These are two completely different technologies that provide a lot of similar results. De-energized testing, of course, the motor is gonna be shut down or de-energized. And it's gonna provide us the safest means of testing. Unfortunately, because the motor uh, uh, being needed to be shut down is gonna provide us the least opportunity for testing. Everybody's in high productivity mode, so there's very few opportunities to test motors when they're down. The biggest benefit of de-energized testing is it enables us the ability to assess the insulation. Now the energized testing, this is gonna be the most common means because we can check things when they're running and most of the stuff is running most of the time. It's gonna give us a power quality snapshot. It's gonna provide us with current and electrical signature capability. Uh, we also have uh, one instrument manufacturer has a torque analysis capability. And if uh, you have uh, partial discharge equipment, you can uh, test insulation in a very limited capacity, usually on medium and high voltage motors when it's running. 
but it's not really practical for all of your motors. Now, first thing we're going to talk about is de-energized motor testing, and in its, uh, you can see several images of the uh, uh, most common testers over there to the right. But it's excellent for testing uh, circuit connection faults, uh, cable faults, winding issues, rotor anomalies, and also we can look at our protective circuitry, uh, circuitry such as surge and uh, also power factor correction circuitry. It's an excellent tool for motor acceptance. You start testing all of your motors before they go into your warehouse inventory, whether it's a, a new motor from the original equipment manufacturer or if it's a repaired motor from a motor repair facility. You test it, and if it doesn't meet your acceptance criteria, it doesn't go into storage. It's great for troubleshooting. You have a motor that's sporadically tripping or drawing higher current than normal under the same load. Uh, you can go out and take a look at it. Equipment commissioning. Anytime you install a new motor or new piece of equipment, you should be out there checking it to make sure that there's no problems uh, to start with. And then, of course, the most powerful application is condition monitoring, where you go through on a set periodicity and you check this stuff and you look for stable trends or you look for changes and then try and figure out what caused that to happen, whether it's normal or whether it's a developing problem. Now here you have a sample motor circuit. To the left you see your main bus and power distribution and then that feeds the motor control center and then we break it down into individual buckets and go out and supply our individual motor loads. Well most of the testing is going to be facilitated at the motor control center. Sometimes you can go to a local disconnect and, and uh, get in there but for the most part our de-energized testing is best to get as much of the circuit as possible because it all feeds the motor and we can have a problem anywhere and it could cause the motor to fail. But normally we're gonna hook up on the load side of the contactor, usually downstream of the overloads. It's difficult to connect up on the overloads, so call that the T-leads. Then we read out through the cabling, through any uh, connection boxes, disconnects through the motor and back to the MCC, motor circuit evaluation or analysis. Now, some of the capabilities that we have is we can measure resistance, inductance, impedance. We can determine phase angles. Uh, we can use these values and do fault localization, whether it's a rotor, stator, circuit problem. Uh, another test that's unique to all tests is current frequency response. We can do a rotor influence check. We can measure capacitance and resistance to ground. Uh, surge and high pot testing, step voltage testing, and then a variation of resistance to ground testing is called time resisting te resistance testing, where we actually uh, operate a megohm meter for a specified period of time. Now, resistance is uh, quite simply uh, opposition to circuit current. And uh, the, the problems that are caused by high resistance uh, uh, cause the connection to heat up. And if the heat goes up, the resistance goes up, the resistance goes up, the heat goes up, and eventually it will become thermally unstable. And if you don't find the problem, it's going to find you. It'll usually open up and then you'll have a single phase problem and circuit protection doesn't work and you start burning stuff up. But the things that cause high resistance, loose or over-tightened, improperly torque connection. How many of you out there use torque wrenches and torque drivers? It's sad to say, but it's probably about 10% of the facilities use uh, torque uh, checks. Poor crimps, frayed conductor strands, improper wire and lug sizes, corrosion, or multiple conductors under one lug are just a few examples of things that can cause high resistance connections. Now here's a case study 
And these uh, connection anomalies, they can occur very rapidly or they can take a while. The one on the right, you can see there the two columns. Uh, one test date was 7-5-2001. And then on uh, uh, April 2003, you can see it's at 6.35% resistance unbalance. So you have it circled and it's in red. And the way you can tell where your connection problem is relative to where you're testing is you read one to two and you can see ohmic value one to two is 8.9 ohms, uh, one to three and two to three or 9.8 ohms. So the higher resistances are measured in conjunction with phase three. So phase three would have the problem relative to where you're testing. And again, these can happen very rapidly. I've had, had uh, serious problems develop in less than three months, and then I've had them take a, a year or more to develop. But uh, if you use infrared and motor testing hand-in-hand, uh, -hand, they work very well in finding these problems. Now, inductance is another critical measurement. It's uh, opposition to changes in circuit current and everything inside the motor, the windings, the air gap, the rotor, the rotor position, all of those things are going to affect inductance. So it's a critical measurement parameter that needs to be monitored. If you have power factor correction capacitors, if you have a problem with them, that'll have a drastic effect on your measured inductance. Here's a uh, case study where we were trending inductance and you can see it's uh, over a period of several years. And it's, it's, it's kind of up and down, but it was staying pretty consistent from about uh, uh, four up to about close to six and then all of a sudden it just skyrocketed and started climbing we did some cord of testing and determined that there was broken rotor bars so you can see how that how can help you now impedance and phase angle uh, these are some valuable information because uh, you you should see symmetry when you're measuring all three phases if you start seeing a disparity in the impedance angle or the the resistance or whatever, you know whether you've got a connection problem or a winding problem or a rotor problem, and we can start narrowing it down. And phase angle is very important because that angle also represents the uh, voltage and current phase angle when the motor's in operation. And again, it should be the same for all three phases. Current frequency response, uh, this is a test that's used by all tests, and basically what they do is they'll take a test measurement at a given test frequency, and then they measure the amount of current coming back through the circuit under test. Then they double the test frequency. If you double the test frequency, you double the reactance, and the reactance is measured in ohms. If you uh, double the ohmic value of something, you're gonna cut the current in half. So by doubling the test frequency, we should see about 50% of the current that we had on the first test. So what we're looking for is balanced current in all three phases. And if we don't see that, then we know we've got some kind of a, a, a problem. And it's very sensitive to uh, winding issues. So it's a great test. But we're looking for balanced response in all three phases. Now here you can see, uh, uh, capacitor box and this is be an individual load uh, power factor correction cap and you can see in the schematic there in the middle it kind of taps off on the load side of the contactor in parallel with the motor windings and if you have one of these capacitors open it's going to throw your impedance vector way off and and that, that's why it's important to know if you have these uh, installed because otherwise you might think you have a serious motor problem when in fact it's just uh, capacitors 
but the capacitance is going to have a uh, 180 out effect or complete inverse and opposite effect on the inductive reactant. So by adding them in there, we're going to lower that impedance angle, the red angle on that uh, vector there. We're going to get it closer to the resistance angle or horizontal. If it was laying perfectly on there, our power factor would be one, which is the cosine of uh, zero angle. Now, here's how we can do fault localization using resistance, inductance, impedance. If I have low uh, unbalance in all of them, then everything's normal. If I have a low resistance unbalance and I have moderate in inductance or impedance imbalance, then I start looking for the rotor. If I have moderate resistance imbalance and inductance and impedance, then I might have a stator fault. I've got windings uh, shorted or something. If I have a low resistance unbalance and very high inductance and impedance unbalance, then I start looking for defective power factor correction caps. And if I don't have a rotor installed and I have balanced resistance and unbalanced uh, inductance or impedance, then I look for improper jumpers or a reverse coil or something in the motor winding. So this comes in handy in motor shops as well, making sure they're doing a, a good quality assurance on their rewinds. Then we have the infamous rotor influence check. This is going to be a measurement of inductance over an angular rotation of the rotor. You normally want to start with key way up, and then uh, you're going to do 18 successive tests over an arc of a pole group. So if I have a four pole motor, I would do 90 degrees. I could do a full 360, but this test takes a considerable amount of time. The 18 tests is so that you have really good resolution on the graph that this plots out. And the best results are going to be obtained if you run the motor at load and then shut the motor down and then do the test. Now, it's going to give you a graphic representation of the inductance relationship between the rotor and the stator. And if you look at my top left, you can see a symmetrical sinusoid for all three phases. That's great. That's, that's what you're looking for. If you look at the top right, you can see where there's distortions, and this is a full 360, uh, it, and there's distortions are moving as the rotor's turning. And that means that the problem is in the rotor. So you could have uh, uh, a, a porosity in a cast rotor or broken rotor bars or something like that. Uh, the bottom left is a high-quality rotor, a medium high-voltage rotor with uh, uh, copper bars instead of cast. And uh, you can see there's barely any change at all in that line. But if you have a problem developing those rotors, you will start seeing separation on that rick plot. The bottom right is a concentric wound motor. This is the way most of your new low voltage motors are going to come from the original equipment manufacturer. The windings are pancaked in and they're not all equidistant from the center bore of the stator and they're going to give you this uh, slight disparity in the uh, inductance. Here's some more. The top left, notice that the two uh, phases on the bottom have dropped. And that's, uh, if you look over at the key on the right, one to three and one to two have dropped. That means the problem's in phase one. That would be a turn or coil fault in phase one. And whenever we measure it in conjunction with another phase, we get lower inductance. Uh, same thing on the top right. It's a, a turn or coil fault in one phase. The bottom left, notice it starts off high. It goes down low and then climbs back up again. That means that the rotor is not in magnetic center. It's moving around in that center bore. It's eccentric. And then the bottom right, 
we only have one phase that dropped. You see the green sinusoid drop, the blue and the red is up. That's a phase to phase short. It's in phase two to three. So these RIC patterns are, are, can be pretty useful if you can't run the motor. But I can find out all this information within about a minute and a half running the motor. But if you can't, this is a, an excellent tool. Capacitance is another uh, good parameter to monitor, capacitance to ground. So when we measure capacitance to ground, we're essentially reading from the stator slots to the windings. And what happens if I increase the plate size of a capacitor? I increase the capacitance. So essentially, if we add more and more contamination onto the motor windings, we're increasing the uh, plate size of one of the capacitive plates because we're measuring to ground. And uh, so as capacitance starts climbing on a motor, that means that the windings are getting dirty. I start putting more and more uh, contamination buildup on the windings. What happens to the motor under normal operation? It starts running hotter. So using capacitance to ground, it's an early warning system for the insulation health. Now, insulation testing is probably the most important test we can do because all of the uh, all the uh, conditions that cause motor failures cause the insulation to thermally degrade. We have resistance to ground testing, which is basically a megohm meter test, high pot or high potential testing, and that can be both AC or DC instruments, surge testing, and then time resistance testing with a megohm meter, which would be the polarization index dielectric absorption test. Surge testing is simply uh, a variable output transformer charging a large capacitor. Then we discharge it between the windings, one to two, one to three, two to three. And you can see that decaying waveform there on the right. Some people call it an impulse. Some people also call surge testing impulse testing. But that waveform of, of that capacitor discharging through the windings is what we're looking for. And it should be the same in all three phases. If it isn't, that could indicate different types of problems. Now, up until the mid 90s, this was a pass fail test. You, you increase the voltage in, uh, uh, in increments up to the maximum test voltage for the operating voltage of the motor under test. And if it, it made it up there and didn't fail, good, the motor's good. If, if it didn't uh, make it, you'd have to rewind the motor. So it was pass fail. In the mid 90s, Baker Instruments developed a uh, sensitive triggering circuit. So whenever the current started to ramp up, it would shut down the power supply and it would indicate that you had a weak insulation. So that provided us a great reliability center maintenance platform for surge testing. Here, uh, just some examples of the different types of uh, surge test waveforms and the uh, different types of faults that uh, they represent. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on there, but most of the newer uh, surge testers, this is all computer automated. It tells you what the problems are if you have the right nameplate data entered into your database. Uh, another innovative thing that uh, Baker Instruments came up with, Baker, by the way, is now owned by Mega Corporation. But they came up with what they called a pulse-to-pulse -pulse error area ratio. Surge testing requires that the rotor has to be installed. Uh, or, or removed, and, and with the pulse-to-pulse -pulse EAR, we could leave the rotor installed. And it's not looking for the symmetry as much as uh, the successive waveforms. So if I uh, charge a capacitor up at, say, 200 volts, and then I jump it up to 250, that then, and I jump it up to 300 and 350, the, the 
the magnitude of that impulse wave is going to climb, and it's going to climb at the same amount with each, each equal increase in voltage. So what the pulse-to-pulse -pulse EAR does is it measures the difference between the successive pulses, and then it measures the difference between the baseline and the peak of each successive pulse. And it should be the same if the incremental steps of voltage are the same. If I start having weak insulation, that's going to change and it's going to alert me that there's a possible breakdown starting to occur. So it's really great because we can do this with a motor installed with the rotor and, and uh, use it for reliability. Here's an indication of a weak turn to turn. You can see the top uh, red waveform. You can see the successive pulses. It's stepping in 500 volt increments from 500 to 1,000 to 1,500. Then the one below it is the other phase, it's in blue. And then the yellow phase, you can see they made it up to 1,000, but when they went to 1,500 volts, you can see where the light, the white line was breaking down. High potential testing is just that. This is testing the insulation to the max. Uh, and again, this is a, a pass-fail. Some of the other in newer instruments have sensitive triggering on it. But you are going to test this motor to the maximum capability for the insulation to ground. Uh, for example, if you look at the table on the right, a 480 volt motor, we're going to test at 3.4 times the line voltage plus 1700 volts. So 480 volts, we're testing at 3,332 uh, volts. For an in-service motor, we take 65% of that. We test it at 2,165. So major stress test on the motor. And this is uh, used in, like I said, both AC or DC instruments. Usually AC is used on your high voltage distribution system and cablings, and then DC would be on motors and motor circuits. Time resistant testing. This is a megohm meter, and we're going to test for a period of time. So we have polarization index. This is a 10 minute megohm meter test. And if you graph the results, you're going to get uh, unique patterns indicative of different insulation conditions. We basically break these patterns down into five uh, different ones, normal and then four anomalous patterns. And here uh, are your uh, five basic patterns. Top left is normal. You see it starts off low and, and climbs, uh, gives the indication of climbing over time. Then you have a low ground. It comes up at a very, very low level and then flat lines out. And then you have tracking, and this is usually uh, caused by uh, dirt or moisture on exposed termin uninsulated terminations within the motor circuit. It'll reach a certain potential to ground, and then it'll discharge and charge and discharge, charge and discharge, and that's why you're seeing that erratic sawtooth-looking pattern there. Usually, if you go in and clean all those exposed terminations, you'll go back to a fairly normal pattern. <coughs> Excuse me. And then uh, bottom left, embrittlement, it, uh, that's just that the insulation is old and dried out and it takes a long time for the insulation to polarize. So you see that really steep slope and then severe breakdown. This is the worst one you, you'll see. This is like uh, if you were pressurizing a fire hose as an analogy. Once you reached a certain pressure in the jacket of the hose, it ripped and all the water started pouring out. Well, that's what that means for your insulation. You've got a rip in the hose. Here's a case study. This uh, was a DC generator, the one on the left, and uh, at a steel mill. And I told them, hey, you guys need to take a look at this right away. They determined they were just going to go ahead and start up, and a day later it failed. 
the one on the right, if you can read that, uh, it actually goes up above 2,000 megohms, which nobody's going to sneeze at that being a, a bad value. But if you look at it over time, it drops down to uh, below 1,600. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, that's indication of severe insulation breakdown. It's less at the end than it was at the beginning. And if you look at the first image there in the middle, what was happening was that splice was rubbing against the uh, uh, motor connection box cover and just the inherent vibration of the motor normal operation had abraded that insulation and it started arcing. And in the right-hand image, you can see where it was arcing to the cover. Now here, this was just a uh, low ground. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so uh, this was a, uh, uh, a mill in Kansas and uh, they just added this whole new facility and it was a 4160 250 horsepower motor their minimum spec was 100 meg at the starter out to the motor and you can see the right below that it's at about 42 meg i think is what it got up to so it failed that test so what we did is we had them disconnect everything at the motor and we went through the next day and uh checked the three dead-ended cables and all three of them are reading about the same about 14 15 meg and that is really rare that you will, will see that on all three cables all be different. So looking for something in common with those three cables that are open-ended at both ends, open contactor and open leads at the motor. We went to the starter. And if you look at the top image in that circle, you can see that Bakelite insulator where the motor leads are connected going out into the cable run. We lifted the phase three lead off of there and then read it and it immediately went to 21,200 meg in five seconds. And it ended up close to 95,000 meg with a 2.43 PI with two being good uh, after the 10 minute test. So it was that insulator that was bad and that could have caused a failure uh, later on down the road. So this is a case of commissioning. We found a major problem. Here's another one on the left. This is two different problems. The one on the left was a uh, boiler ID fan. Uh, the, the main fan had bad bearings. They were putting their spare in. They asked me to test the, the motor, and I did, and I test the cabling. And if you notice, it's a real steep slope. That means possible embrittlement. Well, uh, using common sense, the cables run next to a boiler. The boiler's hot, dries things out. I recommended they replace the cabling, and they once they saw the expense of the job, they decided they weren't going to do it. Six months later, that cabling had to be replaced. It failed. The images on the right were from a the same plant. It was a medium-density fiberboard plant, and they installed a biofilter to get rid of all the sawdust that was in the ambient air. And uh, all the motors in the biofilter were about the same size, so all the same cabling. And every one I tested was reading about uh, 10, 12 meg. So we disconnected some of the motors, tested the motors, and motors read fine. So we determined it was bad cabling. They ended up pulling all the cabling out. You can see it staged there on pallets uh, being sent back to the manufacturer uh, for replacement. All right, step voltage is another type of time resistance test. And uh, it's instead of looking at current, we're looking at voltage and current and uh and you step the voltage in equal increments and you should see an increase in current with each step in voltage so in this example here we're starting off at 250 then going to 500 750 and a thousand and the and the the graph on the right is the current 
And you can see we went up to about one and a half amps with uh, 250 volts and we went up to three amps with 500 and, and so on. It was uh, symmetrical with each step in voltage. We saw a symmetrical step in current. That's what you normally see. If there was some breakdown, you would see a jump in the current and it wouldn't be symmetrical and you know at what voltage it's starting to break down. And it's a non-destructive test, so we can we can see uh, something and repair it rather than destroy it. I do this for baselines or whenever I have a uh, unstable uh, polarization index. All right, here we are at poll question two. I'm going to turn it over real quick to Leah, and then we'll get back to energized testing. Thank you, Don. All right, audience, warm your fingers up. If you cannot see the radio buttons, by the way, you may need to reduce the size of your screen. And thank you, everyone. You're already going. Here's our question. How applicable is motor testing to your plant or facility? Is it highly applicable, somewhat applicable, not very applicable, or not sure? And Don, thank you very much. That was a masterclass in uh, de-energized testing. I really appreciate that you have synthesized your material. Audience, you've got 66% of the audience voting now. Let's get another 10% in, and then we're going to share the results with Don. Excellent, well done. All right, I'm gonna share the results now. We have 51% feel it is highly applicable, 37% say somewhat applicable, 7% not very, and 5% are not sure. I'm going to guess that the second half of the presentation will illuminate further. I hope so. All right. Don, I'm going to share this back to you, and off you go. All right. Thank you. All right. Now, the second part is uh, energized uh, electric motor testing. Like I said, this is a completely different technology, but it will identify a lot of the same failure mechanisms. Just uh, look at it different. And what it does is it entails connection of voltage leads, three leads per phase and a ground, amp probes, and uh, we can connect directly on low voltage, less than a thousand volts. And then uh, for medium high voltage, we're going to connect on the secondary circuits, the CTs and PTs. And it provides a means of assessing power quality. And then we can also look at current and electrical signature and perform analysis on that. It also provides a means of identifying many of the failure mechanisms that lead ultimately to motor failure. And most of the OEM instruments do not assess insulation integrity, as I mentioned before. And a lot of people are very leery of energized testing because we're in the vicinity of energized gear, but it can be incident-free if safe practices and procedures are followed. Now, uh, energized motor testing provides an expedient testing method for identifying for power quality problems, uh, motor and motor circuit electrical issues, uh, drive and drive train issues, and uh, a lot of the failure mechanisms that lead to insulation breakdown. It's an excellent tool for troubleshooting, equipment conditioning, condition monitoring, and power quality, fault isolation, and localization. And then you see three uh, instruments there, uh, the PDMA, is at the bottom, the top left is the uh, Baker, which is now Mega Explorer 1 and 2 series, and the Altest Pro online. Now, power quality, there's a lot of things that we can look at. I'm just going to briefly go over the list. You have high-frequency events, uh, unidirectional oscillatory impulse, uh, voltage fluctuation. When you see the lights flicker in your plant, that's uh, voltage fluctuation. Voltage sag swells, notching, zero crossing. 
transient over and under voltages, unbalanced voltage and current, reactive current unbalances, uh, power factor issues, harmonics. So let's talk a little about the, them a little bit. And you have even, odd, zero, mechanical and sequence currents. And frequency, devi frequency deviation, which you just don't see anywhere, but it's a potential problem. But we'd be able to see it with energized testing. And then ground anomalies. All right, so here's some power quality uh, uh, items here. Uh, and again, these, are, these things happen so fast. We're talking a, a small fraction of a second. You're seeing a, a pulse in, in a portion of a half cycle of something at 60 cycles per second. So it's, if you're not hooked up when it happens, you're not going to see it. So uh, the, the, uh, they don't have event logging capability. I, I think the Altest does, but it's, it's for a short duration. Uh, but if it's, you can see the, the top one there, there's a positive pulse. It's happening on a, a positive direction on a positive half cycle. And then you see uh, over on the side that's slightly slight negative. That would be a negative uh, event. If it covers both the positive and the negative in the same half cycle, it's called oscillatory. And then a very major problem, especially if you have timing circuits that are based on when your sine wave passes from negative to positive or positive to negative at that zero crossing, a lot of circuits are timed at that point. And if you have notching occur right at that crossing, it'll throw the timing off. Then you have uh, voltage fluctuation, uh, flicker. Uh, you can see the sine wave there at the bottom left. Uh, it's not consistently at the peaks throughout the waveform. And then over on the right, we could have normal, we could have voltage sag swells or interruption. Now, harmonics, these are multiples of the fundamental frequency. They're basically an electrical echo. So I have 60 hertz, uh, the uh, multiple of that would be 120, 180, and, and so on and so on. And uh, 50 hertz in Europe, or whatever the frequency is coming off of a frequency drive, a harmonic of that base frequency. There's differing schools of thought. There's a lot of people who don't think they're harmful, they think they are harmful, but it's prudent to believe that they are and monitor accordingly. And it's it, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that they produce heat. And they produce heat at the square of the number of the harmonic. So if I had equal values of the first harmonic and the second harmonic, I would have uh, a, a lot more heat generated on a second harmonic. So here's the harmonic sequence. Uh, and you can see the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. The first harmonic for 60 hertz would be 60, and it would be a positive harmonic. In other words, the harmonics are going to be aiding the, the positive direction of the waveform. Uh, 120 hertz is a negative. It's going to be op opposing the development of the positive and the negative portions of the 60 hertz waveform. Then you have uh, 180, which is a zero uh, harmonic. It has an equal number of positive and negative pulses, but it, this one is an odd multiple of the third harmonic. So it's got its own unique identifier and it's called a triplin. The unique thing about triplin harmonics is they have a tendency to feed back upstream and they will get into our transformers and they can cause a lot of overheating and, and cause some real deleterious effects on our transformers and motors. Then you go to uh, 240 hertz, it's positive, 300 negative, and 360 zero. Now, that's an even multiple of the third harmonic. It's not a triplin. If you go up to the ninth harmonic, it's a zero triplin, the 15th, the 21st, and so on. Those are triplin harmonics. 
the most important thing in power quality is voltage analysis. Okay, and we're going to check for balance phase to phase, phase to neutral, look for uh, harmonic distortion. Voltage balance is extremely critical. And, and uh, if, if we have unbalanced voltage, we can have some really serious effects caused by that because it's also going to cause unbalanced current. Here you can see some displays from uh, the uh, Baker instrument, the uh, all test and PDMA. Now, like I said, voltage should be viewed first, and you want to make sure you get your voltage straightened up before you do anything else because it's going to skew all your other values. You see a, a phase to phase, phase to neutral voltage representation in a time domain up there at the top. And then down below, you see phasor diagrams for voltage to neutral and then voltage phase to phase. As little as a 3 to 5% phase-to-phase voltage imbalance will cut a motor's life expectancy in half because it's going to cause that motor to run much hotter. I mentioned that we could find ground faults with an energized. If you have a ground on a common bus on an ungrounded system and you look at your voltage to neutral, the phase that's common to the uh, ground the voltage will start dropping off as the ground gets worse and worse. So if I had a zero ground on a 480 volt system, normally I'd have 277 volts to neutral. It would be at zero and the other two phases unaffected would be at 277. And if you look at the uh, time domain uh, captured down on the bottom of current, notice you have the real high uh, uh, red and blue uh, phases and the black is right on the, on the center line or baseline then all of a sudden you start seeing a normal waveform. Well, they shut a piece of equipment down that was grounded, which isolated it from the bus. We went back to normal. And you can see the same thing on the one to the right. So with the isolated uh, ground from the bus, everything went back to normal. Uh, current, we wanna have balanced current, uh, uh, proper phasing, in other words, 120 degrees between the phases. And we don't want any distortion like you see in that waveform up at the top of the time domain. Look at how distorted the voltage and current is. Now, with the current and impedance values that you get from your uh, energized data, uh, it's just like we were looking at for uh, inductance and resistance. If the current unbalance and impedance imbalance is low, like 3 to 5%, everything's normal. If I have a moderate un un uh, current unbalance and comparable impedance unbalance, I, I have a, a connection problem developing. I have a moderate current unbalance and a, 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 a two times or greater the current unbalance for impedance, then I have a stator fault. I have some coils or turns shorted. And if I have a moderate current unbalance and a real high impedance unbalance, so 50 to 80% higher, and I'd start looking for defective power factor uh, capacitors. Now, electrical signature analysis. This is another great capability of energized testing. This is, goes above and beyond power quality analysis because this is going to break down our current. And we can look at current, we can look at voltage, we can use various spectral formats, and we can analyze for electrical and mechanical anomalies. And we also can do some fault localization. So. The first thing we can do is we monitor motor starts. So when you hit a start button on a motor, that current jumps up uh, significantly. That's inrush. Be anywhere from two to 10 times the full load amperage on a motor nameplate. And we can monitor that inrush. We can, how long does it take to transition to run? Uh, we can look at the confirmed rotor bars. If you look down at the, uh, the bottom there, you can see an overlay. Uh, the 
baseline was normal and then the, the, the black line was broken rotor bars. It actually had less current because there's higher impedance on the rotor. And you can also see the distortion caused by the magnetic coupling anomaly between the rotor and the stator. We can look at load evaluation. We can check timing circuits on time delay relays and stuff like that. We can check the start circuit uh, and we can trend all of this. And then we can actually figure out what we have just by what our indications are. If the, the peak is normal and the transition to run time is normal, everything's good. If it's low in one channel and longer to transition to run, I got a high resistance connection. If it's high in all channels and longer to transition, then I've got a mechanical load problem. It's requiring more torque and more time to get the motor up to speed. Lower in one or more channels and longer transition to runtime, then I've got a rotor fault, broken rotor bars or something. So there's a lot of powerful stuff here that we can use to narrow things down. Here's some examples of inrush. It's just single channel. There's a 75 horsepower cross the line. Look at this, up to about 350 amps. There's a 400 horse uh, power motor on a soft start. Notice it only goes up to about 900 amps. That could go up to three or 4,000 amps if it was across the line. And if you look at about right below 10 seconds, you can see that peak where the, the soft start uh, times out and it tr transitions over to across the line. Here's a couple more. Here's a uh, 4,000 horsepower uh, on a start reactor, which is basically a transformer that's in the circuit for the startup. When, and that transformer winding is going to reduce the voltage. It's going to have a voltage drop and reduce the current going to the motor. And then on the right, you have a variable frequency drive on start. Here's a six-channel capture of all three phase currents and voltage on a VFD. And everything was good. And then here's that same motor three months later. I tested this thing in like December, and then they called me up, and it failed in January. And it burnt the motor up and I and they put the motor back in. I said, do not run that motor until I get a chance to test it. This is what it looked like when I tested it. The drive went bad and you can see the partial waveform for uh, the red phase and, uh, and, and the blue phase. The only phase that's normal is the black one, which is phase one. So they had to repair the drive and then everything went back to normal. All right, here's a couple other case studies. This is a 50 horsepower two-speed fan. It starts in normal. Uh, and, uh, and and slow and then shifts to fast. And then the bottom one, they had it wired backwards. It started fast and went to slow. Uh, electrical signature analysis and motor current signature analysis. This is where we, we uh, take a time domain, which is a sine wave, and convert it to a frequency domain. Let's say I have a, a 60 hertz sine wave and I have a bunch of other frequencies that are riding on that fundamental waveform. And they just make a, a small percentage of the total waveform, but they're going to cause distortion in that wave. What an FFT or fast Fourier uh, transform does is it samples that sine wave multiple, multiple times, and it determines all the uh, rider frequencies and their amplitudes, and then it segregates them out. So Looking at the green arrow to the left, I'm looking at the time domain. Looking at the burgundy arrow to the right, I'm seeing the frequencies, the, the component frequencies that make up that total waveform. Every one of those frequencies is caused by something. Our job is to figure out whether what it is and whether it's normal or whether it's problematic. All right, here you have an overlay of voltage and current. And by using this, uh, whichever is dominant will tell you where it's coming from. So if voltage is dominant, that means that that frequency is coming from upstream of where you're testing. 
If the current is dominant, it's coming from downstream from where you're testing. If it's in current only, then it's a mechanical problem and it's downstream from where you're testing. So this will give you some, and eventually when you find the one that's causing the voltage uh, problem, it's you're gonna see it affecting the current as a dominant. So it helps you narrow things down. All right, here's uh, rotor bars, okay? When you have a broken rotor bar, that rotor's turning in, in the uh, center bore of the stator and that region of the rotor where the bar's broken or open, Eventually, the adjacent bars will open and you'll have a dead spot there. As that spot passes the, the field poles, there's uh, no magnetic field interaction, then there's a jump. That jump causes sidebands on line frequency. So if you see that uh, little stick drawing down at the bottom, you see the two sidebands on either side of uh, 60 hertz, those are going to be indicative of the RPM and the, the severity of the rotor condition. And you can see the table there, 54 to 60 dB. This is down from zero. Everything's good. So as the numbers get smaller, the severity of the rotor problem gets greater. So if I'm less than 36 dB, it's time to secure that motor and replace or repair the rotor. Here's an example of uh, broken rotor bars. You can see the sidebands uh, with the X there on the right, equidistance from the uh, 60 hertz. And then you can also see some uh, harmonics on either side of those. Eccentricity. Eccentricity simply means the rotor is not operating in magnetic center. We can very easily see that with current signature. And uh, eccentricity means that the rotor is either radially, axially, or a combination of the two out of magnetic center. And the types, uh, we have static and dynamic eccentricity. And the static, it's, it's moving around in the center bore of the stator. And here you can see the indications. If it's static, I just get four peaks, which are based on the number of rotor bars times the RPM of the rotor and divide that by 60 to figure it out in frequency, in hertz. If I have dynamic eccentricity, I see the pull pass frequency sidebands on either side. It just means the rotor is moving around. I can also locate stator mechanical faults, but instead of uh, rotor bars times the RPM, I take the stator slots times the RPM, divide it by 60, and, and I'm looking for those four peaks. And that tells me I have core movement or loose coils in the rotor. And then over to the right, uh, mechanical unbalance or misalignment. I'll still have all the four peaks for uh, eccentricity, but from that first peak to the right, I'll have a 240 hertz peak and then 120 hertz peak. Here's an example of one that I found in a field on a, uh, a ground storage pump at a CPW site. Uh, they had just replaced the pump impeller and they didn't get everything aligned right. So look at the top uh, spectrum there. It says a DMOD spectrum. You can see the RPM peaks at 20 hertz and then in the uh, two times that at 40. You can barely see them. Look at what happened when it was misaligned. You, down at the bottom, you can see how elevated those uh, peaks are for the run speed and two times the run speed. So this, this stuff will jump right out at you when you have a problem and you know what to look for. Here's an example of rotor axial movement. The rotor's moving back and forth in an axial plane and it causes a split peak at 300 hertz. Belt frequencies. Uh, if you have misaligned, uh, belts are too tight, eccentric shivs, et cetera, it's gonna give you four peaks that are gonna be below the RPM of either the drive or the driven shift. So this is a nice capability to have. They'll jump out right out at you as well. 
mechanical faults, we can find blade pass frequencies. So uh, impeller blades on pumps or fan fan blades, if they're out of balance or bent or missing blades or whatever, it's going to cause variations in the, uh, the torque, which is also going to cause distortion in the current coupling between the rotor and the stator, and we can see it. We can also find bearing problems. Here you can see some indications of bearing problems, but when you start seeing bearing problems in current signature, fire your vibration guy, because he should have seen these about a year before you start seeing them with current signature analysis. And that is a completion of an overview of electrical uh, motor testing for both energized and de-energized. And like I said, we cover this in two 32-hour courses, uh, and we also have a, a combined course, with, which condenses a lot of it. But this presentation was meant to be a brief introduction to all these motor test capabilities. And if you guys are interested, I'm sure we can set up some more, more involved uh, uh, presentations on just about anything you're interested in as far as motor testing. But if you have, have any questions or you want more information, you can go to info at the snellgroup.com or uh, contact us at www.snellgroup.com and there's some phone numbers there for you to copy down. I'll give you about 15 seconds to write anything down from that. Then I'll proceed. Thank you, Don. This was a masterclass in, in 50 minutes and I am just stunned at the level of uh, I guess the comprehensiveness of what you're able to share and we do have lots of questions and I want to encourage people to continue entering their questions. We will get back to you after the presentation if we're not able to answer them all now. I want you continue um, sharing what you've got here. All right, so on our website, there's free white papers for both infrared and, and motor testing, and you can sign up for a free newsletter. We're not going to share your email or anything, just give you knowledge information on infrared and motor testing. And then this is, uh, if you're doing motor testing already, these are a valuable resource. Uh, they're for sale, uh, very reasonable, one for de-energized and one for energized uh, data analysis. They're three foot by four foot laminated wall charts. And uh, that is it for my portion of this presentation. And I thank you for allowing me to share this information with you. Fantastic. So we have questions that range throughout the scope that you've presented today, but I'm going to start with a, a high level one. And this reads, of the overall range of motor tests that you've highlighted, which would you say are the most essential and realistic for an organization that is not doing motor testing today to begin doing themselves? And if that same organization were to make an investment in tools, what would be the first few tools and measurements you would recommend? The uh, most important test to do is insulation. So if you're just starting out, get a really good mag ohm meter and go through and mag your motors and make sure that you're uh, getting good resistance to ground readings on it. Because that's what all the failure mechanisms cause is a degradation of the insulation system. Good. Okay. Any, any seconds? runners up well uh, if you're going to energize if you're going to do it for uh energized and you're you're limited i would check your power quality i mean that's a center you got to have uh clean voltage and you got to have balanced voltage and, and current okay and then we've got a, so a couple people asking which of these tests are applicable to vfd driven motors uh all of them all of the energized and de-energized we can run them you know so that 
you're just going to get the the whatever the frequency output of the drive is and, and uh, you can evaluate them as well okay I'm going to give you a specific question here is it correct to conclude that triplin harmonics are the most potentially destructive yes they are like I said they feed back upstream they get into your transformers and remember transformers are designed and motors are designed to operate at 60 Hertz we start putting all these higher frequencies in there we get a thing called magnetic hysteresis, which causes heating. And it's it's kind of like uh, an induction cooktop or a bearing heater. You're cooking by hysteresis, so it can get quite hot. Okay. Last question. This is another high-level one for someone who's new to motor testing. Is de-energized or energized the more proactive way to go? Uh, energized because your your most of your assets are going to be up and running high pro, high production mm -hmm. demands. But uh, when when mm -hmm. when you have the opportunity, do de-energized. Okay, fair enough. All right, audience, keep typing in your questions for a minute or so, and we will get back to you. Right now, I want to make sure that you all see this opportunity coming up on February seventeenth. This is going to be an awesome session. It's a full-on most dangerous jobs with. Um, Matt Joinson of Jaffray Millwright and Payam Asadi of Proof Technic Canada. They have got hundreds of stories to share and a lot of excellent advice about getting precision alignments in all conditions. So I encourage everyone to join us. And then Donna, feel forward to the next slide. After I close today's session, there will be a slight pause and then a survey will appear. I want to encourage everyone also to complete that survey. Doing so will get you a copy of the slides. You'll have an opportunity to request a certificate of attendance and we'll get your feedback on today's session and what you would like to learn about in the future. So please hang on a moment and answer those survey questions. And with that, Don, I want to say a huge thank you for your time and sharing everything today. It was great having you on the show. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed doing it. And thank you, audience, for coming today. We look forward to seeing you next time. And with that, I'm going to close today's session. Thanks, Don. Bye-bye for now. Um, thank you. Bye.